This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges. Welcome to the new season. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. So hand in hand with thinking about the net zero economy and the net zero transition, companies will also need to think about the set of adaptation actions, things they need to do to manage the buildup of physical risks and the impact on their own business and operations as a result of that. So it's a much more holistic and broader agenda than decarbonization alone. That was McKinsey partner Meghala Krishnan. She's here to talk about the first steps that companies can take to succeed in a net zero world. And following their conversation, we'll hear a quick segment from our Rookie Moment series featuring senior partner Lorena Yi. She tells us a story from early in her career about how hard it was to ask for help. Mekala, welcome to the McKinsey Podcast. Thanks, Roberta. Great to be here. To ground our listeners, what does it mean to get to net zero? So what we mean by getting to net zero is reducing the buildup of greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere. There's various kinds of greenhouse gases, everything from carbon dioxide to methane. What climate science tells us is that the buildup of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere is associated with an increase in temperature of the planet. To date, what we see is that the Earth has warmed about 1.1 degrees Celsius relative to pre-industrial times. And with that warming comes everything from increased severity of flooding to increased prevalence of things like heat waves, a whole range of physical changes to the environment around us. The net zero imperative commitments that we've seen across companies and countries is to prevent the buildup of these greenhouse gas emissions that are resulting in the warming of the Earth. Which companies in which sectors are thinking about net zero the most in your experience? We have seen net zero commitments on the part of companies really across sectors. Because if you think about what drives greenhouse gas emissions, there are certainly parts of the economy that contribute directly to greenhouse gas emissions. It's things like the power system, the mobility and transportation system. There's a whole set of energy and land use systems ranging from power to mobility to industry that all contribute directly to emissions. Let's take transportation and mobility as an example. That system is essentially composed of an entire set of sectors, an entire set of companies, an entire set of countries, as well as individuals and consumers participating in that system. Transforming and reducing emissions of that mobility system will involve the participation of automotive manufacturers, it will involve the participation of upstream suppliers, it will involve the participation of downstream consumers. The reason I give this example is to say that as we think about the transformation to net zero and the economic shifts that that would involve, it is really a whole of economy universal transformation. It is really across sectors that we're starting to see companies engage in this debate, whether this is thinking about their own direct emissions, what is often referred to as scope one emissions, but also the emissions in their products, the emissions in their supply chains, the emissions in the electricity they buy and consume. And so it is a whole of economy transformation that is involving commitments on the part of companies across sectors. In the research, there's this, it's almost a direct quote here that the transition will have universal, significant, and uneven effects across sectors, geographies, communities, 
But at the same time, there's the opportunity for growth, right? Depending on how companies approach it and how they look at it. So I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about some of those decision points. What are some of the questions that business leaders face in terms of strategy and growth? Often when people think about the net zero transition, where their minds go is thinking about decarbonization actions. And that's certainly the first and a very crucial part of the net zero transition agenda. Companies will need to think about, as we were describing, how they can reduce their own direct emissions, their own scope one emissions, how they can reduce emissions in the electricity that they buy and consume, what is often called scope two emissions, and then their own scope three emissions, whether it's automotive manufacturers thinking about the emissions of their products or companies that are, say, consumer goods companies that have long supply chains that are thinking about emissions in their supply chains. As you rightly pointed out, it is a much more holistic agenda than just decarbonization alone. Companies will also need to think about how they manage the risks that they may experience as the world transitions. So, for example, certain sectors that have high emissions may see lower demand for their products. They may see cost increases in certain areas. Accessing capital may become more challenging. And we identify a whole set of opportunities in our research, everything from entirely new markets that open up for low emissions products under a net zero world. So think markets for things like hydrogen, markets for things like electric vehicles, for solar power, for other forms of renewable-based powers. But there's also a whole set of opportunities as we think about the broader ecosystem that needs to be built around low emissions products. So this is things like a market for an entirely new set of raw materials and minerals that may need it for the transition, entirely new supply chains that may need to be built up. One of the things that we often say to companies is as you think about the net zero transition, certainly there's an important imperative to think about decarbonization actions, but it's also about managing your risks, about capturing opportunities. And then finally, we talked a little bit about the buildup of physical risks some amount of warming is almost guaranteed regardless of what we do on decarbonization actions. And so hand in hand with thinking about the net zero economy and the net zero transition, companies will also need to think about the set of adaptation actions, things they need to do to manage the buildup of physical risks and the impact on their own business and operations as a result of that. So it's a much more holistic and broader agenda than decarbonization alone. And I think that's a great distinction to make because I know when I hear folks talk about net zero in the transition. It's really focused on decarbonization without really thinking about everything that cascades from that. What basic questions should leaders be asking themselves as they move toward net zero? One of the ways we often talk about it is that the sustainability agenda actually needs to be the CEO's agenda just because of the breadth of business impacts that it has. So if I'm an organization that is navigating a net zero transition there's fundamental strategic questions that it raises for me. Are there markets that I previously thought were attractive that are no longer attractive? Are there entirely new opportunities that are created as a result of the transition? What should my strategic posture be in a world where the pace of change, the nature of change is still uncertain? While we have a net zero target, say by 2050 in many parts of the world, the exact pathway that's going to take is still uncertain. So there's a whole set of strategic questions it raises. Earlier, you mentioned risk. What are some of the fundamental questions that business leaders should be asking themselves about risk? There's a whole set of questions around risk management that it raises. So how do I integrate both physical as well as transition risks into my approach and appetite for risk? 
There's a whole set of capital planning and capital allocation questions it raises. Where do I raise capital? What is my cost of capital going to be depending on the nature of my business? Similar to this question of costs, what questions should business leaders be asking themselves about operations? What should the nature of my operations look like? How do I most effectively decarbonize? Where does decarbonization raise costs? Where does it lower costs? Who are the suppliers that I do business with? So one of the things that we highlight in the research is the breadth of business decisions that are changed as a result of a net zero transition and moving to a net zero world. I'd imagine that companies would need to consider whether they have the right talent to manage through the net zero transition. So what questions should business leaders be asking themselves about talent and the structure of their organizations? There's an entire upskilling exercise that many organizations will need to undertake to navigate this transition successfully. Above and beyond that, when we then think about the implications for middle management, for upper management, these constituencies and companies in particular will need to upskill themselves to understand both the case for change and how their organizations are affected under a net zero world so that they're able to successfully navigate the organizations to the transformations that lie ahead. You mentioned upskilling and the need for upskilling to support net zero transitions. What are some companies doing in that regard or what are some best practices for upskilling workers? What we see organizations starting to think about university curriculum, right? Almost what is the 101, the 201, the 301 set of skills that employees need? By 101 skills, I mean every employee having some degree of proficiency around what the imperative to get to net zero looks like, but then also what the net zero transformation entails. Then we start to also see organizations think about, do I understand the levers at my disposal in my organization to reduce emissions? Do I understand relative costs of different types of levers? Uh, do I understand how to interact with my suppliers? So there's both a set of basic knowledge that almost everyone in an organization will need, but then a set of function-specific know-how that we're also starting to see companies start to internalize across different functions. As we, as McKinsey, look to work with companies on their net zero journey, we actually believe this form of skilling to try and manage risks, embark on your net zero journey, capture opportunities is actually incredibly important for organizations. One of the ways we frame this is that net zero is now very rapidly becoming an organizing principle for business. Michael, how should business leaders be thinking about risk differently in the wake of the net zero transition? So first and foremost, I think what is important to recognize is that with a changing climate and the net zero imperative, there's a whole set of new risks that companies will need to face, whether that is the physical risks from a changing climate or transition risks, which is risks that ensue as the world undertakes a net zero transformation, much in the same way as you know, something like cybersecurity risk maybe was not on the radar of companies 10, 15, 20 years ago, but now is on an every company's radar. Uh, we're going to see that happen, and we're already seeing that happen with both physical risks as well as what, what is called transition risks. Now, hand in hand with that will be the need to build an entirely new set of capabilities, of infrastructure, of data, to be able to assess these risks on the one hand and then take steps to manage them. And so as a result of that, what we think is important for all companies to do 
is to develop the ability to conduct these scenario-based modeling exercises that allow them to understand how their organizations will be affected. And so as they build these capabilities to do scenario-based modeling, they need to take a probabilistic view of potential outcomes, how they may vary across sectors, across geographies, and how they may differentially affect their own business. And there's also now rising momentum as companies measure their risks to not just measure these risks, but also disclose them. We have efforts like the Task Force on Climate Financial Disclosures that has created guidelines for how companies should think about both measuring their risks, but also taking steps to manage them and encouraging companies to disclose this both so that it allows for better capital planning and better investment decisions, but also it allows companies to benchmark their performance, their actions relative to their peers. And therefore, the hope is that it will only improve our ability to manage these risks. How should business leaders be thinking about capital allocation as they're also making the transition to net zero? We use an external scenario from what is called the Network for Greening the Financial System. It's a consortium of central banks that has created scenarios for the transition. We use that as an input to then quantify how much would be spent on physical assets going forward to 2050 to reach this net zero world. What we found today is that we're spending about $5.7 trillion, that's trillion with a T on these systems. But fast forward to the transition, we need to increase that spending from 5.7 today to $9.2 trillion every year for the next 30 years. And so there's a substantial increase in spending, about $3.5 trillion that would be needed to get us to net zero. Now, if we take another counterfactual where we factor in things like the policies that have been already committed to today by governments, if we factor in things like income growth and population growth that would contribute to increased spending, that $3.5 trillion reduces to $1 trillion. There's another aspect to it, which is what we call in the research a reallocation of capital. And by that, I mean, today we're spending about 70% of that $5.7 trillion on what I would call high emissions assets, the internal combustion engine-based car that you and I buy, its investments in fossil power assets. If we are to get to net zero by 2050, 70% actually needs to go to low emissions assets. So there's a fundamental, not just increase in capital that we need to undertake, but also a reallocation of capital from high emissions to low emissions spending, things like electric vehicles instead of internal combustion engine-based cars or solar-based power instead of fossil-based power. What our research also finds is that much of the spending that we need to undertake for the transition actually needs to happen not over 30 years, but in the next 10 years. Now, all of this has implications when we think about how to deploy this capital effectively. It will mean that financial institutions have a crucial role to play in raising and deploying the capital that we need for the transition, but also think about the role that entirely new financial products might play. We've heard a lot of discussion now about things like voluntary carbon markets to raise some of the capital that is needed for the transition, new finance products like instruments for negative emissions, special purpose vehicles to allow us to ramp down high emissions assets effectively, things like green bonds. So there's a whole range of innovations that is needed in financial products to allow us to send capital to the sectors and geographies where it's most needed. Hand in hand with this, we will also need 
certainly a role for public finance when we think about some of the types of investments we need many of them are what would typically be considered public infrastructure investment things like ev charging infrastructure many of the technologies that we've talked about for the transition are still in relatively early stages and may need forms of guarantees to reduce their risks so there's also a role for public finance and then i think almost most importantly the role for collaborative action between providers of capital and users of capital to allow for capital to flow effectively so companies will need to work hand in hand with their investors to effectively communicate the decarbonization agenda that they are about to embark on and allow for investors to feel comfortable with with the risk profile of their investment so we're starting to see some interesting models where financial institutions are partnering with companies in the real economy to build an effective business case around certain types of decarbonization investments and almost do that at a pilot scale before then scaling up across organizations. I'm just curious if there are recommendations in the report about being part of a broader initiative. If you're a single company, what do you need to do to collaborate in order for everyone to meet their net zero goals? Yeah, absolutely. Companies can think about collaborating with their suppliers. So for example, if they need to transform their own operations to reduce emissions, this may involve changing the kinds of inputs that they receive. We're also seeing really interesting efforts on the part of entire industry associations, so companies across sectors coming together to identify net zero initiatives. It will involve establishing a set of best practices, for example, around decarbonization. It will involve, in many instances, setting entirely new standards. What does green steel actually even mean? What does it mean in a certain sector to be at net zero? How do you effectively measure emissions? There's a lot of unanswered questions when it comes to how we actually measure and how we set standards. And so industry groups coming together to do standard setting is an important step. The third kind of cross-industry or cross-company collaboration within an industry that is important is making the investments in some of the technologies that we need for the transition so especially in industries where some of the technological pathways are still uncertain collaborations across industry to finance and fund r&d as well as deploy capital could become very interesting are there key industry associations in this regard it varies across industries right so some industries tend to be more global in nature others more local in nature so we're seeing examples in finance for instance where we're starting to see collective commitments on the part of banks or investors to get to net zero we're seeing commitments when it comes to the steel industry and collective platforms we're seeing this when it comes to hydrogen where a group of companies have come together to, to think about a roadmap for hydrogen deployment this is certainly a, a, an important direction of travel how should business leaders talk about net zero with investors employees suppliers any key stakeholders it's important for companies to recognize that unlike other business decisions the net zero transition is one that will require oftentimes engagement with external stakeholders of a kind that is not typical if we think about a company looking to reduce its emissions they will need to collaborate with suppliers to reduce potentially upstream emissions to change the nature of the inputs 
that they use if they are looking to adjust their downstream emissions. They will need to make a clear case to their consumers for why a green product is a better product than a, a more traditional product. If they are to make the, the kinds of investments that we've been talking about in physical assets, they will need to engage with their investors. Having said that, how should companies engage? It's, it's very important for companies to recognize that this needs to be part of the CEO agenda. Just given the breadth of transformation that is needed and the range of functions that are affected as a result of the transition. Secondly, as companies build this narrative, it's important to recognize there are certain what I call no regret actions. And for companies to understand what those no regret actions look like for themselves and communicate those effectively. So as an example, decarbonization actions that increase in energy efficiency, no regret action. If there are actions everyone across the industry has committed to, essentially the, the momentum in the industry, that may be a no regret action for a certain company. In other instances, companies will need to make decisions about what their strategic posture looks like. Do they seek to lead? Do they seek to follow? Do they seek to collaborate? These are very real strategic questions that companies are going to have to grapple with. And as they, again, engage with the external world, they need to build a case for the type of strategic posture that they are taking. You'd mentioned the need for the CEO to kind of own the agenda. What is the easy first step that any business executive could take? So the first step really needs to be that building that understanding of how a net zero world will affect the organization. Armed with that knowledge, then CEOs and boards need to start to plan for the future. And that will involve building some of the capabilities and to do scenario-based risk assessments, opportunity analyses that we talked about earlier. But that first step is really building the understanding of how an organization is affected by the transition and by physical risks, as well as, by the way, an understanding of the role that the organization can play in contributing to a net zero world. What is the scale of its own emissions footprint and how can reduction of that emissions footprint best contribute to this net zero world? You speak to the need for companies to understand this larger role that they play. That's why we're glad you could join us on the podcast today to help us figure this all out. So thank you for joining. Great. Thanks for having me, Roberta. And now let's hear from senior partner Lorena Yee about why sometimes you just have to ask for help, even when it's hard. So I was up really late one night in the office and I had tons of PowerPoint around me, tons of Excel spreadsheets around me. The fluorescence of the computer was blaring in my face and it was clear that I wasn't able to solve the problem. And I just thought if I try harder, if I work harder, if I work a little later, I'll figure this out. And I sat there way into the evening almost torturing myself. I was almost back to grad school trying to cram for exams or figure something out late at night. And I thought, gosh, this just can't be so difficult. Why is it so hard? At the end of the evening, I couldn't figure it out. I went home feeling terrible about it and thought, what am I gonna do the next morning? I woke up the next morning. Obviously, little fairies didn't come and solve a problem for me. And so I walked to the office saying, I'm just going to have to go into the partner's office and say, I, I couldn't figure it out. A little of a tail between your legs moment. And so I did so and I wasn't feeling great. And I said, you know, I, I just, I'm sorry. I haven't been able to crack this. And he sat down, pulled his chair over and said, let's take a look at what you have. And we walked kind of page by page through it. And in that moment, he did something so important, which is he realized that I was asking for help 
And what I didn't realize is that I needed help and that the act of being vulnerable and saying you need help is when you actually start to figure things out. And I have forgotten the cardinal rule of how we work, which is we work in teams, we work together. And I really just needed to drop that student mindset that I had to pass the test. And so he sat down, we walked through the materials, and of course, through working together, we figured it out. And then the other thing he did was later that week, he brought me to the client and said, hey, we're having a little trouble with figuring this out. What do you think? And was vulnerable in front of the client. And I thought, oh my gosh, aren't we always supposed to be super buttoned up and have four levels deep answers? And what he showed me was, no, you don't. And in fact, that actually is a stronger way to go in many cases. And so we talked to the client about it. And of course, by the end of the week, we had cracked the problem, or at least the thing that we were trying to figure out, which I can hardly even remember, because what I remember now is the emotion of being there by myself, trying to do something, and then the much better experience of saying, look, I need some help, getting that help and working together with the clients and the team members at McKinsey to figure it out. Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And check out the McKinsey Insights app where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks.